Hello and welcome to the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's great to have you here. The Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Where do you get your trapping supplies from? Um, probably a wide variety of different dealers um, and online sources or mail order catalogs. There's a lot of guys out there. Um, I hope you will consider, if you don't already order from Cots Brothers, to to uh, place an order with them and try them out. These guys have uh, great service, fast shipping. They uh, are very knowledgeable and have a lot of experience in the business, and they're they're good guys. And in addition to that, they are sponsoring a podcast, which is kind of interesting because a lot of people in the trapping industry don't really listen to podcasts or maybe don't know what a podcast is uh, for some people. So it's pretty neat to see that some guys are are getting on and, and have supported the podcast from the early days. And as we continue to grow, uh, I I hope you'll you'll support them and show your appreciation uh, to those guys. So that's Cotsbros.com, and we also have a new sponsor coming on. Uh, you'll hear probably hear the first ad in next week's episode, and uh, we'll we'll be having Fur Harvesters Auction Company. So I'm really excited about that. I've I've sent a lot of fur to FHA in the past. Uh, you know, a few months, a couple months ago, I had Mark Taylor from Fur Harvesters on the podcast. We interviewed him about fur grading and different aspects of the fur industry. Uh, some great guys there, and I'm really excited to have them on as sponsors and uh, talk to you more about shipping your fur to fur harvesters and the things that they do to try to help you get the most value for your fur. All right, so this week uh, I have a really exciting episode. Uh, just a little bit of what's going on in the news. Most people, trapping season's over. We actually still have an open trapping season here in northern Maine. We go till the end of April for spring beaver trapping. And uh, I've been, I just uh, did a, just a little bit of trapping here uh, with the TS-85 uh, system with the uh, lock and cable and burlap bag loaded up with rocks, uh, caster mound sets, and uh, pretty pretty excited about it so far. Um, I, I really like the TS-85s, and they're they're so easy to set, and they cover such a huge area. It it just adds to me. It adds a lot of confidence in where I'm actually uh, placing that trap. Uh, that that I'm I'm gonna get that beaver to put his foot uh, somewhere inside those those big wide jaws. So uh, I, I I got my hands dirty a little bit. Got a few beaver. Had some fun. Didn't put a lot of time into it. But I, I did get a chance to talk to one of the legends in uh, spring beaver trapping here in Maine. And if you don't know who that is, you uh, head on over to Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend this summer in August. And he'll be giving a demo on how him and Neil Olson caught, I think it was 178 beavers in seven days. Uh, during that spring season, so one one heck of a trapper and a lot of a lot of fun to talk with him and uh, and swap stories and and learn a little bit more. So let's get into tonight's episode. I'm really really excited about this. You guys know that uh, 
I am just kind of a crazy about trapping in Alaska. It's kind of a dream that I've had for a long time. And I, uh, I, I read all kinds of books about it. I've thought about it. I almost did it. I almost moved to Alaska and, and did the whole wilderness trapping thing. And who knows if a few turns of events might have gone differently. I could be out there uh, maybe 30, 40 miles away from Hymo Korth and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge uh, running a trap line all winter long. So it's it's something that I, I really love. And so this episode is a real special one for me. And I hope that you guys will enjoy it as well. So I've got Jim Furman on tonight's podcast. And Jim is one of those guys that you know, think about the thousands of trappers that are out there and probably hundreds of really special trappers and really good trappers and, and guys that are great to talk with and, and a lot of fun that you've never heard of and you probably never will hear of, but they're out there. And, and when you meet one of those guys, and I've met several of them in my trapping career, it, it's really an interesting thing and, and it's a lot of fun and, and uh, I, I just feel like I, I had the privilege of talking with someone that a lot of people are missing out on talking with or hearing from. So I talked with Jim. He's He's been following Trapping Today for a couple of years now or more and he comments every once in a while about things that, things that I post up on the website and on podcast episodes. And we got in touch after I covered... Uh, the the book Hunters in the Northern Forest in a previous episode this past winter because the the area I was talking about was right in one of his trap lines so so we got in touch and talked for a while and I really enjoyed talking with him and I thought you know I felt a little bit selfish because I I thought you know it would be really interesting to get him on the podcast and let you guys listen to some of that uh, some of his trap line experiences and a little bit about the history of that area, which, which really interests me. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We got a long episode and, and we're going to dive deep into trapping in the wilderness of Alaska. If you've seen the TV show, The Last Alaskans, uh, it, this is right in the heart of that country. So that stuff that, that uh, Haimo Korth and, and all the others on that TV show, uh, the areas that they trap, um, Jim traps right, right in the middle of that stuff. So it, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of an opportunity to get an, an inside view and, and kind of behind the scenes on, on the actual lifestyle and, and the surroundings of a, a trapper up in that area. And for those of you who might be wondering, yes, I am uh, starting to save money in the piggy bank for a trip to trap in Alaska at some point. That's uh, about all I'm going to say about that right now. So <laughs> thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. Jim Furman from Fairbanks, Alaska, and Fort Yukon, Alaska. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on tonight, Jim. My pleasure. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago and, and, uh, I just, I really enjoyed talking with you. You know, I'm kind of crazy. I've always had that dream to be a trapper in Alaska, out in the wilderness, and, and you're one of the guys that's actually doing it. So I found your story pretty fascinating and I thought it would be nice to get a chance to share that with, with some of the listeners. 
yeah, come on up. Just bring <laughs> lots of money. <laughs> yeah, it takes lots of money, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So how yeah. was your trapping season this year? Uh, it was pretty good. I um, I don't hit it as hard as I did when I was younger. I just don't have the energy. But I, the link population was high the last previous two to three years. This year it's dropping off. So I did good on link, but uh, catch any mart in my area. Got a few Wolverine and uh, Wolf. Uh, I don't. I uh, I did pretty good considering the effort I put into it. Yep. Yeah, it's good. Um, and why don't we get started right at the beginning? How did, how in the heck did you get uh, end up in the middle of the wilderness uh, on a trap line up there in Fort Yukon? I I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska, and when I was a teenager. I had four older brothers and a younger sister, but uh, my brothers and I, we'd go out in the woods all the time, and as much as we could. And we had a friend, his name was Steve Zygmunt, and he he trapped a little bit. <clears throat> and he'd go out in the woods hiking with us and whatever we were doing. And uh, he told us one day, why don't you guys uh, start trapping? You're always out in the woods. and so he got us interested, and my brother, next oldest brother, his name was Joe, uh, him and I trapped a little bit. We had some friends that had a homestead near Anchorage. We'd go up there. We tried trapping, didn't catch much. And then I got, I got the idea when I was about 16 or 17 that I really wanted to get out in the woods and get away from the big city, Anchorage. And... Uh, <clears throat> We, uh, Joe knew somebody that lived in Fort Yukon, and, uh, let's see, I, I wasn't even out of high school yet, actually. Really? Wow. <clears throat> no, I was, I hadn't gotten my diploma yet, and in the spring, April of 1971, we went to Fort Yukon, and this friend of, of ours introduced us to people up there, and, uh, that would have been, yeah, April, the snow was starting to melt. And I, we both went back to Anchorage. I got a job when I got out of high school. Actually, I had a job in high school. And Joe had a job, so he went back. He quit his job, went back around mid-August. And I worked till mid-September. We were up there. That was our first winter up there, 1971-72. And so you... you how how did the first winter go? I imagine it was a lot of uh, just trying to figure a way around place the place and well, get used to things. Yeah, and uh, we actually ended up, we were going to go to a guy's trapping cabin about 40 miles from Fort Yukon. Uh, and uh, my brother was friends with this family. He became friends with him while he was up there. Actually, a lot of people, they, they were, they said, what are these? You know, they just couldn't believe two young guys from Anchorage wanted to go trapping. <laughs> Another thing, we get a lot of people say they couldn't believe we graduated from high school. We both graduated from high school different times, and, it, and we're just going to go trapping, you know, not go to college or something. And uh, Anyway, they this guy named Jim Peter told us we could use his cabin, and it ended up we didn't go to his cabin. Uh, we... Uh, used his 
dad, his father had a cabin just a few miles out of Fort Yukon, and we, he told us, his father was my wife's grandfather. He that, told that us, would have been uh, Philip? Philip Peter, yeah. He <laughs> told us, uh, I don't think you guys should go way out in the woods. You might have a problem and end up freezing to death. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't sure and you were ready for that, huh? Yeah, the acreage is a lot different than, than uh, <laughs> inferior it's way warmer and we didn't actually i don't think we had enough money to buy a winter's outfit you know really uh, we may have i i think once we decided we were going to stay close to fort yukon my brother had a skidooey land he bought and then i bought another one and we rented a house a cabin in fort yukon it cost us 15 dollars a month just a <laughs> cabin with no running water uh heat of a foot and uh after the river froze, actually another guy showed us how to get to Six Mile. We actually went down there with a boat and walked back. The cabin was on a lake, so we walked back there and looked it over for a week. We worked on it and stuff. After freeze-up, we drove down. We'd stay there, but uh, there wasn't enough area to trap. We were getting bored. we go back to Fort Yukon. and Okay, so you were, quite, you were close enough to town that they're just... Six miles, yeah. <laughs> you could a lot of guys. You could drive down and check everything we had in a day once you got it set out. So, but you, but were you, you just you could have gone further. You just weren't quite set up or ready to. We could have, but there were no trails, and uh, yeah, we weren't yeah. planning on staying there a lot, and um, you know, long term, year after year. Do you remember? But we go back before you found and cut firewood and sell it and uh, make a little money that way. And then I ended up going out trapping with another guy, an older guy that was from up there. Okay. Do you remember what you caught that first year? I think we caught a link and a fox. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember uh, we sold the link for $28, and we thought we, thought we should get more for it. <laughs> it was an early caught link, you know. And, and, uh, and did you? There just wasn't you, much. There wasn't much fur that close to town either. I, we went out with a guy. We went out to, with Jim Peter after he started trapping at his place at the mouth of the Sheenjik. We went up with him, and right away I thought, "Well, man, there's way more fur out here than there is around Fort Yukon. There was too many guys right around town mm -hmm. trapping back." And then I spent uh, New Year's. New Year's to probably mid-March with the guy at Schumann House on the Porcupine. Okay, uh, so you moved around quite a bit that first year. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of the... We didn't, I just, Jim, Jim Peter would just go out for like three, four days and come back. And I did that with him twice. And uh, went with this other guy, Jimmy Ward, for... About two months. Jimmy Ward was that yeah. that relation to Joe Ward? Yeah, he's his son. Okay, I learned a lot right. from him. And Schumann. Yeah, he uh, he was an interesting guy. He had, a, <laughs> he had grown up in the at Schumann House. They call it uh, Schumann House is about two miles from Joe Ward's cabin. And uh, Jimmy had grown up there, and when he was a uh, upper teenager, his dad turned his trap line over to Jimmy. Or at least most of it. He had a uh, his main line would go. He had three line cabins. He'd go out and he'd come back, and uh, on the same trail. His dad had gone had 
five out that direction, but a lot of it burnt, so they quit going in a circle. But, uh, yeah, he was an interesting guy. I learned a lot from him and heard a lot of good stories. I bet you did, because he had quite a, probably quite a connection to the old-timers at Fort Yukon in that whole area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was in his late 40s. And there was a lot of, when I got to Fort Yukon, almost every adult male <laughs> had been spent time trapping. Wow. You know. Yeah, just about. Or some guys, even a lot of guys even my age, had, you know, they'd go out with their dad or in the spring they'd trap rats. So they all knew something about trapping. How How is that different today? Uh, there's a lot less people trapping. And like the Jimmy Ward's generation, those guys actually lived out there. they just go to town to get supplies maybe two months in town. <clears throat> so the, his kids, when they were, they're my age, when they were young, they'd lived out in the woods. Yeah. And eventually they all had to go to school. But, uh, and the, what happened is the price of fur got low, about 1950, couldn't make any money. So most of them, their families just stayed in town and the guy, guys that trapped would go out alone, go back to town more often. And it probably just slow, kind of slowly, over time, more and more people drifted into town, and fewer people were going. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. So there are a few and, uh, people that still go out. I I would assume and stay out. There's somewhere. a few, but in the when the fur prices went up in the seventies, uh, I remember when Link went up to a hundred dollars about nineteen seventy two. A lot of guys started trapping again. A lot of them were you know, like my age, 18 to 25 years old. Mm-hmm. So it got pretty competitive up until late 80s when the price dropped and guys quit going out so much. Yeah. Huh. So, so your, your trap line, can you, can you tell me like a little bit about, about when you start trapping uh, today, like how far out you go, how you travel, is it river, is it a cleared trail and, you know, a little bit of the logistics there. Okay. Um, the cabin I use the most nowadays is on the Porcupine River, and it's 40 miles the way I drive my snow machine <laughs> uh, to get to that cabin, 40 miles one way. And then I have another cabin about 20 miles beyond it. And then, uh, but I mainly, you know, <laughs> the last... I don't know how many years I've only used that one cabin and I just trap out of it, go out and come back to it. And, uh, but it's, uh, there's a trail. They call it the wood road from Fort Yukon. It's become a wood road over the years. It used to just be a dog team trail or snow machine trail. And it goes about 15 miles from Fort Yukon. Then you just, I just drive on the river. Okay. My cabin. okay. So you got to have the river freeze up before you go. Yeah. Yeah, or, you know, years ago, back in the 80s and so, there were air taxis in Fort Yukon, and I would, I had, I had a job back then in the summer, now I'm retired, but uh, I would, uh, actually my brother had an air taxi business. My brother Joe that I trapped with, he started flying commercially and had an air taxi, and I'd just pay him, I'd be gone working, and I'd pay him to take my snow machine and a toboggan and gas up and landed on a gravel bar 
get a 207, Cessna 207, and uh, you could put a lot of stuff in there. And he'd drop it off. And then when I got to Fort Yukon, this was crazy because I'd be gone quite a bit working for the summer, and I'd get back for about 10 days, and I'd say goodbye to my wife, I'm going trapping. <laughs> and and uh, my brother would fly me, he'd fly the snow machine and the toboggan and my equipment, whatever I, he could get in there, to the cabin on the porcupine, and then I would pay him to fly me up in his super cub, and he'd just fly me up there and I'd start trapping. Yeah. And um, then I, I had a, a cabin that's 20 miles from, we got a cabin on the Shinjik River, and okay. that's the one I usually based out of because it was further, it was competitive then, and there was it was further from town. Okay. And I'd catch more fur up there uh, than I did closer to town, believe it or not, because uh, there were so many guys down there on the porcupine. Uh, but some years... My wife and kids would, I'd get set, all the traps set out, and uh, my wife and kids would fly up and stay with me till about Christmas, and some, sometimes after Christmas. Wow, that's that's awesome. But, yeah, had a little cabin, it was crowded. <laughs> <laughs> and you had but, to have uh, all the food and, every, food and everything for them. And... Yeah, yeah. Um, had to get all the gear in there, but uh, like I said, back back in those days, you could charter a plane right out of Fort Yukon. Now there's no air taxis there in the winter. That you, you got anybody wow. that flies wow. got a charter from Fairbanks. I mean, it's really expensive. I bet it is. Wow. Yeah, I paid a guy with a 185 to fly me up. Must have been four years ago. I paid him $1,300 from Fairbanks to my cabin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't uh, you can't really pay that off with the fur check anymore, can you? <laughs> No, no. Uh, yeah, I, all the flying my brother did one year when my family was with me, I owed him $500 at the end of the winter. And you were getting probably pretty good money for fur at the time, I would guess. Yeah, it was good. I was in the 80s. The link were, were worth a couple hundred at least. But we didn't catch as many link back then. It was uh, we'd catch For some reason, we'd catch Martin. In up areas up that, on the Shinjik? Yeah, and even on the porcupine. Okay. There was a, I don't know why, in the mid-70s, the Martin started showing up where people never, hard, I mean, traditionally they weren't around there, and then they showed up, and they, they were around till in the late 80s. And and you were telling me before that the Martin and Lynx did not uh, overlap much. They no, they don't seem they don't seem to. All the old timers say that too. If there's link a lot of link around, you very seldom see Martin. And I'm thinking from what I've seen about link, they just uh, as far as rabbit with. There's always the link population. Of course, everybody knows goes up when the rabbits show up. Mm-hmm. build up and I think they just sit by a rabbit trail when a rabbit comes along they grab him and I'm thinking well Martin comes because Martin follow rabbit trails too rabbit mm-hmm. run they're gonna grab him and eat him you know yeah yeah I guess I've never right. I've never seen any of it I've seen where they kill rabbits but never a Martin but uh, I had another line too uh, up the Black River that was good Martin country 
Yeah, so it's interesting because uh, when when I read that book, uh, Hunters of the Northern Forest, um, it, they talked about, and you you reminded me that this that I always assume if there's trees and it's Alaska, it's Martin country, but the Yukon Flats was a, a lot of links. I call them links here, but <laughs> a lot of link and uh, and very few Martin until you got up into the hills. Um, yeah. So uh, I did. I was. I got a map here, and uh, I was looking at a bunch of the little. It's funny because I I got this map of that area because I was interested in learning more about it, and it's 22 inches by 24 inches, and like half yeah. of it's blue. It's just everything. Blue is uh, flat, or it's all water. It's all water. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of lakes up there. It's incredible. But but I was looking at some of that those flat areas, and there's I think there's two places I saw uh, a name of a stream called Martin Creek. So yeah, there must be something associated with that where pe- people found found some pockets of Martin or something. Yeah, that'd be up the. Uh, I think they did up the headwaters. That's north of Fort Yukon. Martin Creek. Yeah, yeah. There was one. There, one one. there may have been one somewhere else. Like uh, that could be. But I found I found that quite interesting. And then the other thing was reading in uh, Jimmy Carroll's book uh, about a place. I think he he was up the Salmon River and he was catching Martin in a spot up there. Yeah, the Salmon River is the Shinjik. The old timers okay. called it Shinjik. My wife's family trapped where I trap on the Shinjik, and they always call it Salmon River. There's a lot of salmon that spawn there. Huh. Okay, uh, that makes a lot more sense river. now. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty river when the water's low. It's real real clear. And he'd go and, like uh, 50 or 60 miles up there, I think. Yeah, I know where I, we, our, our old cabin, the one I use <laughs> on the Shinjik, is just a few miles from... Uh, Remember he had a partner named Blackjack? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I used to go right by that and set traps. Not far. It's like three miles from my cabin. Oh, no kidding. But eventually he moved up further. He kept moving up further. Yeah. And the cabin that he had when he quit trapping up there, that place, I don't know how many guys owned it over the years. It kept changing hands. The last guy that owned it, uh, he bought it in 1950 from a guy in... Uh, it's it's sitting there empty now, but uh, his family might have a permit on it. But uh, yeah, that trap line was trapped continuous until the 1990s. You know. Wow. Yeah, I, I run into people once in a while, and they think we just go out and trap out all the fur, and then we leave. <laughs> 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 I tell them, no. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. <laughs> Yeah, it would not be in their best interest to trap the fur out. Yeah, if it gets real bad, you just take a year or two off. But yeah. So, so when you're running your lines, uh, like you're going forty miles out to your cabin, are are you running loops off of from the cabin, or you got just like different straight line areas that you come in and out of? I I pretty much backtrack. Uh, I'm trying to get them into loops, but uh, man. <laughs> Well, I did have my original line went in uh, like a 45-mile loop. Mm-hmm. When I'd, I'd go up the Sheenjack and then I'd cut across country to the Porcupine. And we had a, we had dogs for a while, so then you got to have shorter days and 
our cabins were pretty close together because we thought we could go 20 miles in a day with a dog team when we first started, and that's too far. <laughs> so we put a cabin in the middle, and 10 miles is not enough unless unless you're setting out or you get there early and have a sideline. But uh, the good thing was once we quit using those dogs, I always had a cabin halfway. If I broke down, I could stay in it. Yeah, right. Now those cabins have collapsed. The roofs have collapsed. <laughs> so you better not break down. Yeah, I'm ready if I break down. I think I'm ready. You never know. <laughs> but uh, but so I um, yeah we had I have I have permits for three cabins, but we had uh, five cabins that we used, and then we had a tent camp that we didn't use very often. But. When you first got there uh, in the seventies were how much what percentage of people were trapping with dogs versus snowmobiles um it's kind of funny because a lot of those guys like the guy i trapped with jimmy ward he he trapped with dogs up until like three four years before i met him and uh, they'd always keep their dogs till they all died they wouldn't kill them yeah. <laughs> or sell them they just keep them and uh, he, he didn't have any more dogs but a lot of guys his age would say I'm not going to use this snow machine next year I'm going back to dogs and I actually thought they would and that's why my brother and I got dogs we thought oh they're better <laughs> and, I, and I got older I got older and I thought hey them guys never did go back to dogs they kept using <laughs> snow machines but there was only the only people I remember with dog teams were actually older guys like 70 years old that had their dog teams and they would actually use them much. They just uh, they didn't want to change? Uh, yeah, I don't think they felt comfortable. Maybe they couldn't afford a snow machine. But yeah. it's kind of interesting because nowadays when I see a dog team, back then you'd see a dog team and you'd think, oh, trap line, yeah. you'd think, an old guy. Yeah. Nowadays you see it and you think, oh, it's a young guy that's racing. Yeah, there's there's probably Pain, still a lot of people for a race. Yeah. What's that? There's probably more people racing dogs than there are trapping now in some places. It, yeah, there's not very many dog teams. Uh, there used to be a lot of dogs around the villages, but not like not like it was then. That what, uh, Richard, that book, uh, North Hunters of the Northern Forest, he he talks about. Uh, how many dogs were in the village of Chalkeetik when he was there? See, that was 68. By the time I got there in 71, they had dogs, but everybody had snow machines, too. So it changed fast. Yeah, it did. It did. And uh, I, uh, he makes one comment in there. I, I underlined it in my book because it made me laugh. He says, every guy that has a snow... I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Every guy that has a snow machine is satisfied... And every guy that doesn't have one wants to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, I remember uh, that. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I'm a machine guy, I guess. I, we had a neighbor on the machine jack. He was one of the first guys. He was about 15 miles upriver from us. The, the, the tra- he had the trap line Jimmy Carroll used to have. And he was one of the first guys to get a snow machine up that area but he uh, <clears throat> he uh, had used dogs and he'd 
they weren't very good in them days, but he got one to try out. Well, the they, thing with the dogs is you you had to take care of them all year round, and you had to uh, either either catch your own fish to feed them or buy feed for them, right? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's like a whole different lifestyle trapping with dogs. Um, when I had dogs one year, I had to work and I got out to trap. I had a snow machine and some dogs, but I figured I'd use the dogs. And I didn't get enough fish. <laughs> I made it through the winter all right, but uh, um, the next year I went out in August. I thought, I'm going to catch these fish and be ready. <laughs> August is pretty early. That's way before November. And, uh, about 10th of September, I'm thinking, man, I'm, I think I'm going to get a snow machine. You know, I'm spending a lot of time catching fish. <laughs> you know, I'd be working somewhere and buy gas. You know? Right. Yeah, machines get better and better, but they also got more and more expensive over the years. Yeah, they are expensive. So we skipped over uh, an early part of your trapping uh, when you first got to Fort Yukon. I'm curious, yeah. you started that first year, and you had a, a cabin just straight outside of town, and then you went out with a couple of guys. Uh, what? It, how'd you transition in the second year? And like over, I'm trying to get into like how you developed a trap line that that you have now. well we i mentioned we trapped with jim peter and he had a cabin at the mouth of sheenjik and we knew his father and his family real well and they kept telling us you should just trap our old trap line and they had they trapped up the sheenjik and then they i don't even trap a portion of what his dad used to trap but <clears throat> they uh so my brother and I, the following year, my brother, I was working down in Anchorage on a survey crew, and my brother went up to, with Jim's son, his name was Evans, and they found a place to build a cabin. And uh, we built a cabin there. And we thought we were out of native. My, I wasn't married then, but it turned out I married. This lady was my mother-in-law. <laughs> Jim's sister, she told us, we could build a cabin on our native allotment. So we went up there. Native allotments weren't marked then. Okay, so so going back to that, that, that was part of Anilka? Actually, the native allotments was pre-Anilka. I could be wrong. Got me thinking about it here. Uh, it was a program that had been going for years, and they were closing it out, and there was a deadline for applications. Uh, you had to be 18, I think, at, by December 31st, 1971, to apply for 160 acres. Oh, wow. And it could be divided up into at least four parcels, you know, 40-acre parcels. So uh, she had one on the porcupine above the mouth of the uh, Shinjik. And that's where my brother and I, Evans, took my brother. Well, what happened, uh, they went to the nearest stand of timber, and we built a cabin there. And then you found out where it was. Well, they didn't survey him for, oh, man, I don't know how long, but my mother-in-law, by that time she was my mother-in-law, when she went up to stake it, she's like a mile down river. <laughs> 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 but there was no big timber on her allotment. It's a nice place, but the trees, uh, part of it had burnt. Nowadays, they're good trees. They're not monsters, but uh, it's, it's a nice spot. 
and they used to stay there when they were ratting in the spring and things like that. But uh, so I, we ended up getting a permit when it became a. Uh, what, are we, what are we on? Yukon Flats Wildlife Refuge. We have a permit for that cabin, so it's near my mother-in-law's allotment. But uh, probably not. Then the, not big chance. A big risk that she'll put a cabin there and in out trap trap against you. No, no. Uh, they're, they're, uh, I'm, I'm surprised they put up with us. <laughs> my brother and I. I'm surprised they invited us. But, uh, uh, so we didn't plan on staying there uh, forever, but nobody was trapping nearby, and they kept telling us, go ahead and go up to Shinjik. So we there was a guy up, the guy up to Shinjik, his name was Bill Russell. We went up, my, I didn't go to visit him. My brother, two brothers, I got my other brother, Bill, he had an airplane. He was up there, and they flew up to see him in the winter, and he said, yeah, he showed us. We made an agreement with him where we would stop trapping, mm-hmm. and he didn't have a problem with us, so we just started trapping between him and the mouth of the porcupine, and we'd go up the porcupine always. <clears throat> so uh, then my brother got married, and I thought, hey, I'm going to, Eventually, we trapped together for a few years, and he got married. Said he wasn't going to trap, but I, I was single, and I, I went up. Uh, that's when I flew out and built the cabin on uh, Salmon Fork of the Black River, and it was Martin country, and I wanted to just good Martin country, so I hired a guy to fly me up there. I built the cabin, and uh, did you know if there were anybody else trapping there, or did you fly there well, for I, the right I, reason? Oh, I, I I did a lot of checking, yeah. and uh, there was nobody nearby. But uh, uh, nobody had trapped there in the late 1940s, and I was I went in there about 1974. But the pilot that flew me, he lived in Fort Yukon since oh late 40s, and he knew everybody and everything. And so, if someone had been thought, there, he'd have known he'd have known about it. He would have, and I talked to people that lived, uh, it's east of Chalkeetsik, I talked to people there, and I actually, there was a guy, it's hard to believe nowadays, but there was a, a man there named Jonathan Hunter, native man, and he had trapped this drainage I was going to in 1920s, so I went and talked, <laughs> <laughs> I went and talked to him about it, uh, now it's hard to believe, he trapped there in the mid-20s. That must have been pretty fascinating, uh, some of the things he would have told you. Yeah, he was, uh, he actually, there was a village called Salmon Village, and then Old Rampart, Salmon Village is on the Black River, Salmon, uh, Old Rampart's on the Porcupine, and they'd trap between those two villages, him and his, his uh, cousin was who he trapped with, and uh, I think they, he said they trapped there about five years. And I can't figure out, I don't know when Martin was season was closed in Alaska. It was closed for a number of years, and then they had, uh, in the 20s. Okay. Government closed. But that doesn't mean they weren't, people weren't trapping there, right? <laughs> they call them bootleg Martin. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading about those in the, in the Sam White book. Yeah, yeah, he was probably chasing them. Yep. Trappers. <laughs> but so, the problem with an area where it's, Purely Martin country is that the Martin population goes down. You don't know. There's nothing there. On the flats, there's always something like 
Mink, Link, Mink, yeah. and Fox, or something, you know, and and some Martin. But uh, yeah, that I, I never took my family up there. I, the cabin was too small, and, and it was so expensive to fly in there. But my brother and I, both of my brothers and I, trapped there different years. My brother Bill had an airplane so we'd fly in. There's it's probably the best Martin country in the world. I don't know if it gets any better than that. We better we better <laughs> edit this part out then. Yeah, we better. There's a friend a guy I know traps he still traps there. We uh I turned it over to a guy here in Fairbanks and he turned it over to a guy from lower forty eight who couldn't didn't know how to trap and then this other guy that I know he He's got an airplane. It plays for a guy with an airplane. So it's a lake. It's on a lake cabin. Nice. So was it just a case where you had so many other places to trap that you you uh, couldn't didn't couldn't keep up with all of them? Well, I I actually quit trapping about nineteen. I'd say quit. I tapered off in about nineteen ninety one or two. Let's see, the last time I trapped at the, where the Martin pot was in 1991 and 92. And in 92, see, my brother would fly me up there. And my brother, Joe, the one with the air tags, he died in a plane crash in 92. And uh, I couldn't keep two trap lines. I had a guy that wanted to buy it from me. And... Uh, when he first called me, I actually got mad at him. Really? Because <laughs> my brother hadn't been dead that long, and I told him it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to our family. Yeah. But I talked to my brother's widow, and I told her if I can't go up there and maintain two trap lines, and might as well turn it over to this guy. And he's a nice guy. I still know him. He lives here in town. But uh, So he trapped there for a few years, and it, a lot of it burnt, and he got discouraged, and turned it over to these other guys hmm. but it was good martin country stunted spruce uh, hilly uh, yeah we my brother joe would trap there on weekends and he'd usually get like 90 martin a year nice i got 101 there uh in about five weeks one time <laughs> i can't even imagine <laughs> I can't believe it myself. <laughs> how, how much ground do you get to cover to trap that many Martin? You know, we just had one cabin and we walk out and back every day. And we did have a tent camp, but we didn't use it. You were on foot? Yeah, yeah. That many Martin on foot? <laughs> well, this is that's just unbelievable. Martin what's density. That? that I'm just I well, can't uh, yeah, it is. Um, uh, the, like I told you, the Martins showed up in that area. They were really thick because uh, that's Martin country. But on the flat, well, my brother and I on the flats, we get about 120. And that was when the link we numbers told, were down. Yeah, we didn't. We, we get two link, uh, but we get about 120 Martin. And at that area, we just fly up there and walk around the cabin and get about 80 or 90. <laughs> Jeez. He oh, took man. me up the one time I in January. I was broke and I had been laid off of this job I had, and uh, he took me up there in January. He had a Veronica chief then, 
barely we could barely fit into that thing him and i <clears throat> it's a small airplane uh i was there a week i thought well maybe the first week i'll get three and i had uh 19 or 20 by the first <laughs> i was able to set it out and check it uh, again yeah and uh, the first day he dropped me off i set the stove up in the cabin little cabin i set the stove up and headed out setting traps and uh, came back to, I mean I just had a few hours and then been, been a Martin and a Cubby but he didn't get caught and the next morning I had him I kept going and on the way back I had two more I know a lot of, a lot of guys so first day I had three you know Jeez. within 24 hours I had three but but I uh, I was able to set it out and check it before he came back so I uh, he came back. I, he'd leave me there for about a week. Yeah. I'd uh, go to town and uh, I'd go up the porcupine and trap a little. So, so I caught 101 by the end of February. <laughs> uh, that that reminds me. Did you ever listen to those uh, interviews uh, on the the Upper Yukon? The guys that were all around Eagle. I. I listened to some of them. There was uh, a guy named Steve Alvey. Uh, I don't remember that. Uh, yeah, and they were they were up above Eagle, and they they were from California. There's some hippies from California that moved up there to be in the wilderness, and uh, yeah, they uh, they left after several years, uh, most of them. But his his brother stayed on, and mm-hmm. he trapped an area at the time of the interviews. Uh, Steve's brother, I think his name was Dana Alvey, he was trapping this drainage. And it was it was just after a, a certain time after a burn, and he said it, it was one of the highest Martin densities in in the state at the time. And uh, yeah, I, I, that's what that was what that reminded me of was when you said you caught that many Martins in such a small area. Yeah, I know a guy who flew in a, near a burn and built a cabin, and the first winter he caught two hundred and twenty five Martin. <laughs> Spoiled him. <laughs> a couple of years later he caught a hundred and he was complaining <laughs> oh it's the worst when those guys do really well their first uh their first season or two man yeah, perspective those old timers like my wife's grandparents they my i used to talk to my wife's grandmother a lot and she was in her 60s she was my age then and uh she said along the Shinjik, they always caught some Martin, and she said they'd get like 40 or 50 a year, but they also went way up into the hills, uh-huh. uh, which is, uh, yeah, she, she said when they were young, they would, uh, her and her husband, I think they had one child, Philip and her, would just head out for the hills, and uh, those guys, I don't know if they paid attention to season, as soon as they could travel, they started going. Yeah. And uh, she said they just looked for Martin tracks, and and uh, he would walk ahead, scouting and clearing brush, and she'd come behind setting traps. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, was that was that in the vicinity of where uh, Sam uh, touched down with the plane, and and uh, Philip was w- walked over at night to find him, make sure he was all right. That, that I think that was near the mouth of the Sheenjik, where their their home cabin was at the mouth of the Sheenjik. Okay. And I actually asked Jim Peter about that, and he said there was these lakes near the mouth. 
they call them Salmon River Lakes. I, I, I trap around there now, but, uh, you know, when you read that book about Sam, I think one thing you might have noticed, he, whenever he's forced to land, he looks for a trail, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. there's the safety yeah. net there, like um, somebody might come by. And, but uh, a lot of people, when I first went, I never heard of Sam White until I went to Fort Yukon, but I do recall people uh, saying they Used to shoot at his airplane when you fly over. <laughs> uh, yeah, that uh, I know that's crazy, huh? <laughs> well, I don't think Philip Peter did, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I heard about that. I, I don't even know if it's true, you know. But uh, he's yeah, he he's I don't know if he was joking or what, but he talked about finding holes in the canvas. He could have, yeah. Maybe they're shooting when it's on the ground. But. but boy, Sam was quite a quite a likable guy. After people got to know him, I think he he made a lot of friends. Yeah, yeah. I never heard anybody uh, badmouth him, even though he was the game warden. <laughs> that was uh, he lived in Fairbanks and was probably retired by the time I got up there. I know where his old house was. It's not there anymore. But. But uh, yeah, he his wife. I don't know. Did he mention that in the book? I think his wife was a nurse at the hospital. She was, yep. And she was friends with my with Philip Peter and his wife. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what direction we want to go because I want I want to talk with you a little bit. You and I share kind of a common. we we both really like the history of this stuff and and uh, yeah. the old timers. I'm I'm really into that, and I know we've we've all we've both read a lot of the same books. So I thought it'd be kind of neat to just talk about a few of those books for people that haven't haven't read them and and maybe have a little more uh, perspective on the ground. Uh-huh. Uh, so so the hunters of the northern forest. So that just to give people a little background that that was. Uh, Richard K. Nelson, anthropologist who was doing a study on, uh, I guess, wilderness survival up in the village of Chokitsik, uh, back in the Yeah, he was an anthropologist. Say that. Go ahead. Did you, did you mention that he was an anthropologist? Yes, yep. So he... Yeah, that was, he was there a few years before I ever went to Chalkeetsik, and I don't think I ever heard of him until I saw the book. <laughs> so then Which were you asking it? around about him afterwards? Uh, when the book came out, I showed it to people, and they go, yeah, and these younger guys, they called him Ricky Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they must have teased him, but uh, um, actually Jimmy Ward, the guy I trapped with, mentioned him when I was out trapping with him, but I, I don't think I realized the guy was writing a book then. Yeah, so he spent you know, a lot of time with those guys, huh? Yeah, he, he had a few dogs, and uh, if you go from Chalkitsik to the Porcupine, it's about 20 miles, so he would go over and uh, visit Jimmy Ward at his trap line. That's the guy I was with. And, uh, yeah, most of those people in Chalkitsik moved there from the surrounding areas. So that was one of those places where people were scattered out about um, in in the area on trap various trap lines, and they all kind of over time gra- gravitated towards the village. Yeah, yeah. There was a school there, still is. 
we should probably go back uh, way back because one of the things that a lot of people may not understand or or know is Fort Yukon was kind of the like the fur capital of the world for quite some time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, there was a lot of fur that came in there, but it, some of those trappers came from way up in Canada down the Porcupine. Right. Yep, those guys from up in the Old Crow Flats and yeah. There's books. I th- I think I there's a the Journal of the Yukon is from like the 1840s, I believe. And uh that that was when they're they're going in and kind of exploring the area and and uh so Fort Yukon was established as a trading post, right? It was established by the Hudson Bay Company in the late 1840s. Till the US kicked them out. Yeah, that, so they thought they were in Canada, right? <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I, I've read they, they, I don't think they really thought they were. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, what I've read is they were told that they were concerned about the Russians, and they had a treaty with the Russians, some kind of treaty, and they were told if the Russians show up, and just back up the porcupine. But uh, And the local people that were trading fur with them, They'd ask them where are the Russians, and they'd say they're just downriver a little ways, and they they got pretty good prices or they're good trade goods, you know. <laughs> <What's going on? laughs> yeah. So the uh, but I don't think the Russians ever went up that far. They got up around Tanana, which is a couple hundred miles or more downriver. For you. So there was something unique about this area. It's at least in the Nelson book, he describes it as being really uniquely rich in fur. And he seemed to believe that it was because of all the diverse habitat from the flats and all the wetland areas, and then it tapering up into the the hills and the terrain, how their terrain changed. There's all this variety of habitat for, for different fur species. Is that kind of, kind of what you gather from that? Yeah. Um, I think there's other areas, but they're not as big that are got just as much fur. Yeah, okay, that makes and sense. Bad big area a lot of times when you mention Yukon Flats to people they think you're talking about the Delta oh the yeah, yeah and and uh, I mean I've talked to a lot of people from Alaska they don't know what Yukon Flats are but it's it's in the interior but it's uh, yeah there's a lot of a lot of fur like a lot of fur bears in that area a lot of a lot of rabbits when the rabbit cycles high so so my understanding is that before the fort was established and the the natives kind of were more they tended to be pretty nomadic and then and they were not trappers uh and it was the uh, when the forts became established and they found that they could actually sell fur and use that to buy ammunition and food and different supplies then they kind of transitioned towards from being like a, a big group into small family groups that went out in, on different trap lines through the winter. Yeah, I, I think they were always <clears throat> like a few families when they were nomadic. Okay. Not a, not a, I don't know how big a group you were thinking, but... I, I really don't know. I'm just throw, fly, throw, yeah. throwing off the cuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But uh, uh, yeah, a lot of times they were... Uh, families you know like my wife's grandmother she her and her husband their home cabin at the mouth of shinjik was only like five miles from where she grew up 
Mm-hmm. Her mother still lived there, or no, her aunt trapped there then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, certain families, they're just like Schumann House on the Porcupine was maybe, I don't know how many families lived there, but at least a couple, you know. Mm-hmm. It only took about two or three families, and then they called it a village. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Villages weren't very big. And so basically, they, as the, the opportunity to, to sell fur came around, they, they started spending more time trapping in the wintertime. Yeah. And, and they were scattered about, and then there was kind of a transition over a few decades where people gravitated back toward the villages because the kids needed to go to school. There was an opportunity to go to school. And uh, there was less money in the fur. Yeah, the fur prices got so low in the fifties. They just a lot of people would go out for a while, short time. Muskrats in the spring was a big deal. Uh, I think that by then they had cabin fever and they just wanted to get out. You know? But if <laughs> yeah. there was a lot of rats, you could you could make some money in a few weeks. I used to get a kick out of my wife's grandmother. She she'd have her husband Phillips in the springtime she'd have him set a wall tent up in the yard and sit out there and sew beads because <laughs> she wanted to be in the this cabin fever because <laughs> she wanted to be in the light yep oh, that's funny uh, it's a real thing a cabin fever <laughs> <laughs> so uh so I I, I do I want to I'm going to hold off just a little bit talk about ratting because I really do want to get into that um but a couple of the other books. So, oh, okay. The um, the Sam the Sam White book, which I don't know. Did you tell me about that book? I can't remember. I think I, think you, I did because you sent me a picture of some letters, an yes. envelope. That's right. I was researching the uh, Walter Arnold's papers at the University of Maine, and I I had some letters from this guy Sam White, Fairbanks, Alaska. And I was like, what the heck is this? So I, I think I texted you a, a picture of the letter and you said, yeah, he was, uh, he's got a, uh, he, he wrote a book about him. So I, I think yeah. I ordered that book immediately and it's about, oh, 400 pages of information about Alaska. So that's a bunch of articles huh, that they wrote about him and compiled into a book huh? yeah it was Jim Reardon put it together and he's done you know he's the one that did the Sidney Huntington book and uh, the one about Frank Glasser the Wolfman and yeah. uh, several others uh, but it, it was a combination of things that Sam wrote it was also some of those interviews uh, from the library those those oral history interviews yeah uh, they that that it looks like Jim probably transcribed a bunch of those in, uh-huh. into individual chapters and then it was just a collection of different historical things that he found uh-huh. so, um, but that that has that has a lot of history and that was somewhere around the oh I want to say the 20s and 30s when he was a warden stationed he was only in Fort Yukon for a couple of years I believe survived and he survived yeah he he i think i read that on the past episode where he described the town and it was kind of like a it was really interesting it was almost like he he described it as like like a sort of a western town you know it was just uh there was all kinds of people there who were from all variety of different places throughout the north america and throughout the world and they they were all kind of 
you know, it was all kind of like the, the pioneers that had gone there to, to be trappers and to catch fur. And it was uh, a place where people maybe didn't regard the law quite so much because there had never been any law there. And, uh, and there was good money in fur, and it was a, just a wild, crazy place for a while, I guess. Yeah, in the winter it was pretty empty, but in the summer it was a busy place. Yeah. You know, one thing you got to keep in mind is the Yukon River was like a main highway then. They had steamboats going up and down. I don't know how many. I think they landed in Fort Yukon about once a week. Wow. And they would haul freight from St. Michael's, and then they'd also haul freight from Whitehorse because the railroad went from Skagway to Whitehorse. So if you're on the Yukon, I mean, you right on the Yukon itself, it was a transportation corridor yeah and then when they built the alaska railroad they'd haul freight from the nana to all those villages so when i got done the sam white book which he talked about you know it was all over alaska um but when, when i got done that you sent me uh this above the arctic circle by james carroll and so that was kind of caught my eye. I immediately ordered that one and, and read it pretty quick. And this was specifically 100% um, Fort Yukon. This this was James Carroll, who was from, I think either he was from like Minnesota, I believe. And he was probably your age when you moved to Fort Yukon. He he went out to Alaska and, and I think he was in, maybe in Circle or something. He was He was working as a cook in some lumber camps and uh, he eventually started trapping up on what is now the, called the Shinjik River. And uh, mm -hmm. there's quite a, quite a story there. He had quite a few years there on that trap line that were, were pretty uh, fascinating. I, I think he, his first book he called The First Ten Years of, in Alaska. And uh, I think at the, at the end of the book, it makes it sound like he quit trapping, but I, from talking to people, he trapped there longer than ten years. Trapped there more like 14 or 15. Yeah, he kind of just stopped. Uh, it, it's almost like he, he abruptly stopped keeping the diary and then there was, there was nothing after yeah. that. But, but you know, he. he uh, yeah, um, he also trapped later on on the Upper Black River, but that was just for a couple of years um, when his sons were older. But, uh, okay. Yeah, because when, when he got to the point, he had like a dozen kids. I, I guess they say that about a quarter of the Fort Yukon population is related to the Carols. Yeah, yeah. My wife's related to him through Fanny. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when he started to get a few kids and he was taking them on the trap line, uh, but after a while he, uh, he kind of settled into town and he established a trading post. Um, yeah. I think he started with a sawmill of some sort and that didn't work out and but he built a trading post and and he operated that for for a long time after this diary ended i guess i think he did 1950s but i'm not sure when i got there it was called the purple young onion it was a show house dance hall the building, <laughs> the building was but it's gone now but his sons uh i knew most of his sons all of them. One of them had died in Clifton, the oldest. But uh, I used to really like visiting with his son Joe. He lived near me. He yeah, so, must be my yeah, dad. There, uh, there's a 
The thing on my map says Joe Carroll Cabin. It's up the Porky Pig. Yeah. Yeah, they also call that boxcar okay. cabin. Yeah, that was the one I was talking about. My my wife's grandmother grew up there. Okay. That cabin. Well, she didn't. She lived there when she was young. Her dad died. Her mother remarried, but uh, so that's how Joe ended up family deals. He ended up inheriting it somewhat, but uh, yeah. So that's that's uh, that's interesting. And then there's a book that I found out about by reading the Carol book. It's just kind of like a big web. You can't get out of it. Uh, it's called uh, Born on Snowshoes, uh, and I, I just started reading it, so I don't really know much about it, but it was, it's Evelyn Berglund Shore. Yeah, do you have the second copy? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's got the fir- I have the first one, and she, the second, as you call it, edition, they added more to it. And she's got more photos in it, but yeah, this one. I never knew her. Uh, everybody in Fort Yukon knew her. Where were they trapping? They trapped almost to the Canadian border on the Salmon Fork of the Black River. Okay. And she married that guy Bill Grinnell, and they trapped a couple different places. So, are there any books that I'm that I still need to read? <laughs> I read a good one that uh, I reread it. I got it on eBay. I lost my original copy. Uh, it's not trapping, but it's about. It's called The Lost Patrol. It's an interesting book. The Lost Patrol. Yeah, it's about some Mounties that go on a patrol and get lost. <laughs> it happened about 1910. Really? Yeah, but um, yeah, it's interesting. The my wife's great-grandfather, this guy named Richard Martin, and he was a Canadian. And the way he got to Fort Yukon was he jumped a whaling ship up at Herschel Island. <laughs> and the Mounties were at Herschel Island. In this book, they explain why the Mounties were there. Herschel Island is Canadian territory, but the Americans' whaling fleet was going in there. And there's actually big warehouses there they built, but he was there and him and two other guys jumped ship. Well, back in them days, I guess they could shoot you if you jumped ship. They'd spend the winter there, the whaling fleet. And uh, they ended up coming down the Porcupine and going to living in Fort Yukon, these three guys. Really? Yeah, I know from that. <laughs> One of them eventually moved back to Canada, but uh, but he lived in an old crow. <laughs> So, so speaking of old crow, uh, that the from the Sam White book and Jim Carroll's book, it sounds like quite a extreme place. <laughs> old crow, or yeah, the old crow flats. Just a oh, it, I've never been up there, but it looks like it's uh, treeless and uh, with a lot of lakes. The wind blowing all the time and thirty below in May. <laughs> I would, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, it's funny. I I was all I I keep saying that the if if I uh, if I get a chance to go up there, my first thing I want to do is go shoot muskrats in the spring. Uh, yeah, and you know the weather wouldn't be so bad, and just just long, nice, long, sunny days and everything. 
Uh, but the way Jim described going up to Old Crow and shooting rats where you couldn't even see the sights in the rifle, the mosquitoes were so thick, and the guys were they're living in tarps and <laughs> trying to stay out of the wind and uh, eating boiled muskrat to stay alive. Uh, I don't know how much fun that would be. <laughs> I don't either. They were trying to make money. You know, that's worth money. Yep. Yeah, they actually went on. I think it took them a month to get there uh, through the uh, on dog team. Uh, well, yeah, there's a picture in there in the book of their toboggan, and you can see how big their two boys are, huh? Yeah. Little babies. Mm. Yeah. Now, it, nowadays, no one would take their kids uh, on that far of a trip, I wouldn't think. Probably get put in jail. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it sounded like uh, quite a place. And then the other thing I found interesting was uh, one year they had to look for some missing people. And I think he went from, he said something about a trail, a cross country trail from Salmon River over to Chandelier Village or Venity. Enotai? They call it Enotai. Yeah, see, that's why I talk to guys like you because I can't pronounce, I don't know how to say any of this. <laughs> that's the way I pronounce it. Um, I thought they went to Arctic Village, but I, I can't oh, remember. Oh, maybe, yeah, they probably, maybe they did, yeah. That's up in the mountains. They were probably just walking through the valley, but they had to know where to go. I mean, there there were trails, but there used to be trails everywhere. But uh, but up, if you go up the Shinjik, there's a river that drains from towards Arctic Village. Okay, so that yeah, that, that was be... what those guys went on looking for those guys. <laughs> Would that like trails like that? How many of those still exist? They're all pretty much grown up. Uh, there's trails between the main villages like Chalkeetsik and Fort uh, um, Yukon and Venatai and Birch Creek. And uh, There was a trail. A lot of them, I, I, I kind of look at them like they were like a public trail, but guys would trap on them. That trail that I trapped on that went from... kind of interesting they didn't, the, they didn't just follow the rivers in in the richard yeah. nelson book he talks about the different types of trails and what the i guess the common courtesy was on the different trails like the main trail you could tra- you could set anybody could set traps on it but you couldn't set a trap in the middle of it and then the side no, you don't, you don't. 
side trails yeah, you could I, travel on them but you couldn't set traps on them because they were on somebody's line yeah that's pretty common <laughs> and then the real side trails you could travel on them but you have to move all the snares and reset them if you wanted to go past <laughs> yeah if it's a guy's trap line there's going to be snare you never know what you're going to might be a trap on the trail or a link tangled up right there yeah. but most guys don't follow other guys trap lines now and, and the, the other thing was if somebody had a animal that was in a trap you killed it and hung it up for him yeah if it was alive yeah and usually you'd get word to him i mean i mean it just happened you know you get to a village and you say i killed hung up an animal and then they they talk about it <laughs> it gets around <laughs> But there's just not many, not as many people getting around there. Yeah, there's way less. Somebody you don't know up there, even nowadays, it's odd. So, <laughs> so, on a trail, so, you know. so back back in the '70s, when you when you got in there, um, is there anybody left still trapping that was trapping back then when you started? You're making me feel like an old man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do uh, that. But. No, actually, most guys don't. There's hardly any I'm trying to think. Uh, there's one guy I know. He's a little older than me. And some guys younger than me that didn't start trapping until after I did. One guy, he's he's from Schumann House. He lives in Fort Yukon. He still traps. But he's probably a few years older than me. So yeah, I don't have guys to visit as I used to up there. I used to go talk to these old timers and have a lot of fun listening to their stories. But yeah, they were. <laughs> it's it was just amazing seeing those all those pictures from Jim Carroll's book, uh, of those old timers, and they were from all over the place. Like like Joe Ward, he was he was from England, right? Yeah, yeah, he was an Englishman all the way. <laughs> yeah, he was an interesting guy. He, um, uh, I think I told you I couldn't uh, carry on a conversation with him because he was deaf. I couldn't yeah. be used to yelling at him. I was only barely 18 years old. I, could, I wasn't used to yelling at adults. <laughs> and, and then his short-term memory was uh, bad. But he'd talk about a lot of old stuff. He'd just start talking and... I always remember he'd say, uh, back in those days, we had trap lines running parallel. There were so many people trapping. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he was real systematic. He had, uh, I mean, even when you talk to him, he'd tell you how he loaded his toboggan and when he stopped to eat. And, you know, I mean, it's like everything was real planned out. And, uh, his son told me that, uh, there was an old cabin there, and well, his son had a cabin right next door with his dad, but his dad was old then and lived in Fort Yukon, but uh, there was a cabin there, and I went and looked in it, and he said his, it was called my old man. He said, my old man would, uh, he had a gear cabin is what it was. He When he got back from the line, he'd push his toboggan, unhook the dogs, push his toboggan in there, and that's where he kept everything, and then he would, when it's time to go, he'd load it up and push it up back out. Uh, that's like a garage, you know. <laughs> but most trappers didn't didn't do that that I know of. <laughs> no, no, you'd have to be be pretty regimented maybe to to have one of those. Be good, good to have. <laughs> <laughs>
but he, uh, yeah, and he did, they caught a lot of rats at the Schumann House area then. Uh, and they made a lot of money off rats. Uh, for, um, I think Jimmy told me the most they got was around 3000 He was a kid, and he caught more than his dad. <laughs> I think he got like 1700 I should have written this stuff down, 1713 But he said his mom skinned every one of them. Jeez. Now, Those were the days, huh? <laughs> I guess. Now, was that, like, were they were they on the main river? Were they going into all those little lakes and ponds? They were, they trapped the lakes, you know. Each, like, uh, the way it was is, like, guys would have lakes they'd trap every year. Yeah. She gave somebody else permission or he got overwhelmed. There's too many rats. And they, they would they trap huts up through the ice? They'd, start, they'd usually start trapping them in mid to late March hmm. and then trap them until they were shooting them in the spring. The big thing about spring shot rats isn't, it isn't the bullet hole in the rat, it's they're fighting and they're just all, they tear each other up. I don't even know if they buy rats like that nowadays that are torn up. Well, I was going to ask you, if do people still shoot rats in the spring there? Not very much. I I did it, but I haven't done it since the 1980s. Yeah. I trapped them on the lake a few years ago. Those lakes Sam landed in, I trapped rats there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's not as many rats as there was. I don't know why. The lakes got real dry. Yeah. But a lot of them filled up, and the rats came back somewhat, but now they've dropped off again. Hmm. Yeah. It's a lot of fun paddling around or riding canoes, shooting them. Oh, and it, I and it's, light all, it's pretty much light all night by then. You know, you can, if you got the energy, <laughs> you can stay up all night shooting them. Uh, the funny, it's funny because I didn't do it enough to uh, figure it all out. I probably did paddle around shot rats, maybe four springs, maybe five, I don't know. But uh, <clears throat> it's like you paddle around they won't cut you call them they, oh, really? make a squeak oh. yeah you you call them make a squeaky noise with your mouth I, my mouth would get tired <laughs> <laughs> make the squeaky noise and they'll, they'll come over they'll come towards you and uh you can shoot them then but sometimes you do it and they don't want to they just swim off and the, the same lake like all of a sudden there's a certain time they'll start i'm sure there's somebody that knows all about it but you go around the same lake at a, at a certain time of the night, and it's like they're all out and they're responding. You know, so, most I shot in one night was forty-nine. Wow! <laughs> and you're up, yeah, you're up skinning all the next day. Uh, maybe longer. I, I was out till like three, two, three in the morning. My father-in-law was with me, and, and uh, he couldn't see good. He had cataracts, and he shot twenty-six, and I shot forty-nine. Jeez! Wow. He, uh, I wasn't getting very many, and I went and told him to go back out, and he said, I can't see good, I'm going to stay at, he just got in his sleeping bag, and when I came back, he said, I had a big pack with rats, and walking, and he says, how many did you get? And I told him, he, I won't say the word, <laughs> he just had a couple <laughs> pulled over, he was disgusted, couldn't see, but, but yeah, it took us 75 rats to skin him, I don't remember how long, that's when you need a rat skinner, you know. <laughs> How are the yeah. bugs? They get bad. Yeah, they get pretty bad. Uh, it's warm enough to 
when it gets up around 50 degrees. In that time of year, there's a lot of water, so everywhere, and they're all breeding, so they get pretty bad. I don't know. I could always see my sights, though. <laughs> I didn't have to. Actually, I had a rifle with a scope on it, but uh, 22 of the scope on it, so it worked pretty good. Yeah, then I, I bought it. I kept thinking I want. It was a bolt action. I I thought I want a semi-auto. I bought a semi-auto 22. I put a scope on it, and I never went out in a canoe after that. Shooting <laughs> red. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, Carol made it sound pretty dramatic, like uh, like nobody would want to want to go and do this. Um, yeah, I I, I it, I've seen mosquitoes almost like when you're going to shoot. There's maybe ten on your barrel or seven, <laughs> but <laughs> you can still see in your eyes. Yeah, they get in your eyes and stuff. And you're always swatting them. It, it just uh, it's uh, not much fun. It really cuts into your production when you keep swatting mosquitoes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You're just glad that the cold weather is gone by then. Yeah, it's uh, it's like it's kind of like you got spring fever, and especially if you're young, you know, you want to be outside. You don't want to be in the house. Mm. When I uh, uh, was younger, and I travel, I haven't traveled really. I did about four or five years ago on those lakes, but when I was younger, and I'd go out ratting. I check my rat traps, go back to cabin, skin them, and it'd be like five o'clock in the evening, and it's light out, and I think I gotta go. It's still light. It's all winter. You're it's yeah. light. Gotta be yeah. out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is, I call it wanderlust. You want to just get on your machine and go. You don't want to. You just want to travel around. You want to move. You, know? you don't want to just sit in the cabin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're busy, but. Yeah, that's got to be pretty crazy when it's dark at, what is it, dark at 2 o'clock or something in the middle of the winter? And Well, it's actually, you know, they changed our time zones uh, several years ago. Uh, it's like 3.30, it's pretty dark in December. You get, and it's not light till, I mean, the sun's not over the horizon, it's not technically up, but the shortest days you can see good from about 10 till 3. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so that's got to make such a long night. Yeah, it's not bad if you got a bunch of fur to skin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we didn't have good headlamps back when I started trapping. Those headlamps they make nowadays are real helpful. And then snow machines have headlamps. So. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, just the short days you just got to, I just have to not think about it. Starts getting to you. Oh, you I start bet. Thinking, oh. oh, it's dark again. <laughs> <laughs> and in the springtime, I got this thing like it'll start getting dark outside. And people say, "You can turn your light on." And I say, "No, there's still light coming in the window." I, I've been looking at that light there all winter. <laughs> I want to turn it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. I, I I notice I get a little depressed when it's December, January, and and we get we probably get twice as much light as you guys um, that time. Of yeah. Year. And it's still, you still notice it for sure. So. Yeah. I think the big thing when you're trapping is you just got to keep busy, but yes. then you get cold spells. See, we used to get long cold spells and you just stay at the cabin. 
What's the cutoff I... for you uh, for temperature? Nowadays or when I was younger? <laughs> <laughs> How about both? <laughs> Usually 40 below. But if it's gonna, if I if I think it's gonna get cold, I don't go out because I don't want to get stuck out there. Yeah. Uh, it's dropping, and I see a forecast. And twice in the last ten years, I've driven back to Fort Yukon, and when I got there, it was fifty-two below from my cabin because I didn't want to leave my wife. She was teaching school, and I didn't want to leave her in the house and have things freeze up. Yeah. But yeah, you can see ice fog behind your snow just sitting there. You look back, if you're on a stretch of the porcupine and you look back behind you, your skidoo tundra's leaving a trail of ice fog. Jeez. <laughs> oh, man. It's not a big one, the trail of it. I, I, I notice a big difference between zero and 20 below. And, you know, we, if we almost never get 40 below here, I think uh, like a couple times in the last four or five years we've got 40 below but um it's got to be i mean you, you just keep adding layers of clothing on or yeah and keep moving around yeah uh that's the bad thing about a snow machine if you're tra- i call it traveling when i go to town i just drive you're not getting off yeah and you just gotta get off and walk my brother and i used to stop and start punching each other <laughs> like we were fighting <laughs> Warm up, <laughs> and uh, but uh, I get off and set traps now. All those guys are done trapping; they're gone. I never used to set traps from Fort Yukon until I got past the mouth of Shinjik. But if you get off once in a while, you warm up. Yeah, get off your machine. But oh, those guys, I like Jimmy Ward and these guys I used to go out with. They never considered it cold till forty below. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did they have they just, decent clothing? Uh, they seem to be warm. Uh, <laughs> well, they wore a lot of fur, probably. Uh, mainly just mittens and a ruff on their parka. Um, he, when I went with him, he wore wool pants. I remember that. I actually would thought I'd be cold if I dressed like him. Really? But I was a, a little kid then, you know. <laughs> 18 and only weighed about 150 pounds. I don't know if that made <laughs> Yeah. So, so you stopped trapping for a while and then you started back. Uh, why'd you stop and why'd you decide to start back up? Um, we moved to Fairbanks and because that's where my, I had a seasonal job and it was in Fairbanks. My kids went to school here. That's a big reason we moved too. But we moved over to Fairbanks and uh, I trapped that first winter. My brother was alive, and he'd fly me. I'd go to Fort Yukon, and he flew me out, but uh, he died the next winter. Actually, I was talking to him. It was in November, and he was going to talking about flying me out to our cabin, but he never made it to town. Jeez, that's too bad. Yeah, he was doing, uh, he had that air taxi. He was doing uh, low-level moose surveys in the mountains when he died. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it's dangerous uh, flying. I, I worked for a fishing game when you were doing it. And we were up in the mountains and uh, around Eagle, and I just thought, this ain't worth it. No, no, not to uh, count, not to count laps. Yeah, they, I don't know if they do it as much as they used to, but then uh, we did it in the Brooks Range, but that was easy because the moose were all in the valleys and there's no trees up there, but <laughs> short. But he liked doing it because that was a lot of hours flying, and they paid their bills. Yeah, 
so you have, let's see, you have some, it's funny, Jim, because there's a lot of, a lot of trappers from Alaska that we see on television these days. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, it's, it's pretty funny because it, it, it kind of makes you forget how many people are actually out there that you've never heard of, like, like you, um, but yeah. you, you got a few neighbors, you got a few neighbors that are on the last Alaskans. Yeah, the Selvins are up the Sheenjik above me, but they're probably, they're way above me. And then Haimo, I know, I've known him since uh, he came into the area. Bob, I met him in Fort Yukon, he was just getting there, Bob Hart. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I actually saw a guy camped on a riverbank, and it was in the summer, late, late summer, and I went over to talk to him, that was the first time I talked to Bob. He was looking for a place to trap. How did he end up where he where he was? I really, the first year he was there, he went up out a different area. He chartered a plane and went up to uh, near the Christian River. And I don't I don't know. Then he he didn't like it up there. He came back and I the only thing I know can think of that there was an old guy's cabin there. It's on it marked on the map. Uh, Ed Owens was the guy's name. And Ed Owens' cabin, there was a guy that, they didn't have title to it, but they bought it, and I think those guys must have told him he could trap around there, because his cabin was right across the river from Ed's old cabin. And that's where he trapped till passed away. Is that the, is that the Colleen? Yeah, the Colleen River. Yeah. And now Char yeah. Charlie's trapping up in that general area? Yeah, somewhere uh, I haven't. Uh, I don't watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> you don't but, need to uh, watch it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've watched. You're living that. it. Actually, Heimel wanted me to watch part of it. Did he? Wanted, <laughs> he wanted to ask me a question. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd rather talk to him than uh, watch TV. <laughs> yeah, it's just but, about the uh, only, uh, only TV show I watch. What's that? It's uh, pretty much one of the only TV shows I watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Charlie's using some of Bob's old lines, and uh, a lot of theirs burnt up. Charlie's dad still goes out to their line, but he, I don't think he traps much. He's a good friend of mine, Charlie's dad. Well, Charlie, I've known Charlie since he was like four years old. Do, does uh, Charlie's dad live in Fairbanks? They have a place near Fairbanks. Charlie lives near him, I think. But okay. uh, his dad uh, goes out usually from August till February. Yeah. Wow. So traps the dogs. One of the few guys that still has a dog. Still meet. does. No, well, he does. I don't traps anymore. I think he just goes out there and enjoys himself. Yeah. Yeah, and Charlie seems like uh, seems like a really sharp kid, and seems like a hard worker too. Yeah. He is. Um, he's got a plane, which helps a lot. Yeah, he's like uh, one of the few guys. A lot of people that grow up out there like that, they don't want to stay out there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it yeah. would be interesting to ask him why. Why he, he wants wanted to go back. Well, I noticed he's got the airplane. He's traps with a snow machine. And he built a new cabin. So he's kind of modified, you know, he's 
his dad never had a plane. He'd charter people, but it's good to have a plane, but they're real expensive. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's young, though. He's got a future. He could go on to be a commercial pilot if he wanted to. Sure. Do just about anything, really. I mean. Yeah. And he's, in, he's, he's, he's doing what he wants to do, which is the point. He's got a guiding business, too. Yeah, he's he's a, a, the future, I guess. <laughs> There's not very many young guys his age out there doing that stuff. Well, there there will be even fewer if, if uh, fur prices uh, don't get any better. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I don't think. That twenty-eight dollar link my brother and I sold in nineteen seventy-one was worth about one hundred and fifty dollars nowadays. <laughs> yeah, sixty to seventy dollars is just not enough for links. No, I remember a guy uh, that trapped on the porcupine. He caught a lot of link, and first year I was there, he had a dog team, and I talked to him in the spring, and he said he made fifty-three hundred dollars. That was quite a bit of money back then. Wow, I don't even make that much nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you took that and put it in with inflation, I think it'd be like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, you know. and and uh, back in the when was that? That was seventy one when that guy it was first year. Seventy one and two. Sometime I think uh, in the thirties or maybe even just a little before the depression. It sounds like there were some really high fur prices uh, going around then as well. Yeah. Yeah. You could make that, uh, Jimmy Ward would tell me when he took over that line from his dad, think about this guy's like 17 years old. Um, he only went to third grade, but, uh, he said he'd make 5,000 a year. And this was in the mid, it was during World War II. He didn't get drafted because he had, believe it or not, they wouldn't draft him because he had some kind of asthma. But he said he made five thousand dollars a year. That's back then. That was a lot of money. Yeah, it makes sense that there were people out at the time when, uh, you know, when they could do pretty well. Even people that maybe weren't like us, who are crazy enough to keep trapping with the low prices. But you know, there's a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people that would start back up if the prices were a little higher. Yeah, I think if it got, uh, it got like I was saying, it got pretty uh, competitive in the '80s when Link went up. Or mid seventies to mid eighties. So you're one of the lonely trappers left up there. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a few. You got to have a job or an income nowadays. Well, I always had to have a job or some other income. I never could survive on trapping alone. Yeah. All right. Well, Jim. Um, I really appreciate you taking all this time. Um, is there anything else that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? Not nothing. There's always something to talk about. Uh, we pretty much covered everything for now. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. Um, it's a lot of fun talking with you and, and getting a little bit of perspective uh, about the area. So. Yeah, you'll have to come up someday and try to get that Wolverine you're after. I I hope so. That is a goal. That's a goal of mine. It, it might take a little while, but uh, I'll I will make it happen at some point. Just a matter of time. Yeah. Okay. I'll talk to you again someday. All right. That sounds good. Thanks a lot, Jim. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye.